Support for this show is brought to you by Instill. Our friends at Instill really understand what it means to build and manage relationships in a holistic and human-first way. The platform's advanced UX design and real-time analytics, smooth donor management to make it easy for you to connect every supporter to the impact of your work. To learn more, head on over to www.instill.io backslash Mallory. You would do ideas not based off ROI or whatever. You were like, the burning question, what is someone going to feel once they've seen this or whatever you created? That was the question we'd ask. What do you want someone to feel? And it, that was the barometer of whether you're successful or not. Once you created a campaign or a product or whatever, and it's like, did people feel that? And like, yeah, I'm like, okay. Welcome back to episode eight of What the Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. Today, I'm interviewing Duke Stump, an inspired protagonist who loves to build cultural bonfires and explore what it means to be human. His diverse background includes 15 plus years at Nike, the CMO at Seventh Generation, first expert in residency on sustainability at Presidio Graduate School, curator and co-host for the Do Lectures, EVP of brand and community at Lululemon, and the first CMO at Lime. And currently, he's the founder of Bonfire with Soul, an online course introducing a new school of thought for business. I'm actually inside Bonfire with Soul right now, and I cannot recommend this course enough for every aspiring change maker. In fact, when we jump on the line, I get so wrapped up in what Duke is talking about that I never actually officially start the interview. Whoops, sorry about that. We pretty much jump right into the predictors of success for both the nonprofit and the for-profit sectors and really how they're not that different. That perhaps it's not all about the ROI metrics that we're constantly talking about, but about these principles that Duke has created and talks about and teaches about A few of his principles that we talk about in this episode are trust breeds magic, honesty over perfectionism, and inspiration versus desperation. Each lesson, each principle has so much for business owners and nonprofit leaders to take away. I can't wait for you to hear this. So let's dive in. How are you? (laughs) <laughs> I'm good. You know, I feel like I've already been with you for an hour because I've been binging some more videos from Bonfire. I just feel like it's hitting on so many things I've wondered about and thought about and just deeply hope everyone in business takes <laughs> forever and ever. And I'm just so grateful for what you're teaching. So thank you. I appreciate you sharing. I mean, it's been a learning journey for me just to see how people have received or responded. And I think what's nice is it hasn't been the same for everybody in terms of their takeaways are all different. But yeah, at the end of the day, I don't think it's really a business course or adventure. I think it's something different, but it's been fun for me. It's hard to put it out there. It's normally not my nature to do stuff like that. So it's it's been rewarding and fun. Yeah, really cool to hear about your own journey with public speaking throughout it and the way you weave parenting into different stories. And I mean, I think what you're 
talking about, and this is sort of what I am constantly wondering is like, okay, what is business? What is the nonprofit sector? Does it have to be these boxes that we've traditionally made them out to be? And you share so many stories throughout it too. And and so it's like, okay, maybe it's not a business course in terms of what's being taught traditionally in college, but like, should it be a business course? And isn't that the better question? Yeah, I mean, I think it's whether it's nonprofit or for-profit. I mean, I really believe that financials are not a predictor of success, but they're a function of doing all these other things. And these other things I think are applicable to nonprofit, they're applicable to for-profit. And it's, you know, as I shared at the beginning of the course, like I'm obsessed with burning dogma of business, regardless of what type of business it is, because I think we limit possibility by a lot of our actions. And so it's, it goes against the grain. So for some people, it rubs people wrong. They're like, that's not how you do bit. Like if I talk to Silicon Valley friends, they're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm sharing a different path. (laughs) Yeah. Well, maybe that's what we really even focus on during this conversation. What does it look like to sort of trust doing things a way that aren't the like prescriptive way? Because I feel like that's the overarching theme that I'm kind of walking away with from all the principles is like so many of them require a level of saying, you know what, those metrics might be known as the indicator of this outcome because that's been the way on a macro level we can calculate and under, you know, we just desperately want prediction and understanding. And I feel like so much of what you're teaching is like out of your head, into your body, like into like community, listen. And like when all these things are in flow, of course, those other things are going to happen. But what does it take to? let go of some of that other stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, you know, like as I share in the course, like I love the natural world and the natural yeah. world is creates the conditions conducive to life because it's always attuned. It's locally attuned and responsive. And I feel like we become lazy. We defer to these methods of predictive or measurable or tangible things. And then we forget the ability to see all these other things because we're not attuned. You know, we're just like, okay, grab input and then we react. And I feel like what's lost is when you really, really believe something. Like when we had Pete Fairley the other day, who's the, you know, Oscar winning director on, and he said, I've been told no so many times on scripts and things, but if I fundamentally believe it, then I just do it. And it doesn't mean it's always works out, but he goes against the grain. And, you know, I normally talked about my own experiences, but the one I love, the story that I love is that when they were first doing Seinfeld as a pilot, it got terrible reviews. And I think it was one of the producers like, I don't care. We're going to do Seinfeld. And so could you imagine like if Seinfeld never existed, you know, I mean, it was like one of the most iconic shows in TV history. And so I just think we've lost the art of serendipity. I think when we dull people's own radar, I would much rather like be wrong based on something I fundamentally believe in versus deferring or defaulting to this like mechanical rote way of doing things. So what point, and maybe you talk about this in the course and I just haven't seen this part, but was there like a noticeable moment in your career when you sort of gave yourself permission 
to, I mean, you started at Nike in that program where it sounds like they really fostered kind of a level of creativity or, you know, thinking outside the box. So maybe it wasn't something you feel like you had to like unwire, but I'm just, you know, I think about so many people who have done things the textbook way and what it would take for them to give themselves permission to step back from some of those indicators and learn how to move forward in like a fundamentally different way. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it started, there's like a number of different points, but one of them I talked about in the courses, I was in university as economics major, and I'm taking this philosophy class, and I have to do this basically comparison between Plato's Republic and Socrates. And I remember like... I just can't do this. This feels really boring, but I know I got to play by the rules to get the grade. And so for whatever reason, which was outside of my normal demeanor, I'm like, I'm going to write a play and they're going to be in a pub in a local bar in Burlington, Vermont. And I'm just going to share this like dialogue between the two of the Plato and Socrates having a beer. And I remember it felt so good writing it as like it was freeing. And then I remember I handed it in and that once I handed it in, it was like, oh, snap. Like, I just totally messed up. I'm going to get enough. I'm going to get enough. And when I, I remember, like, I was having heart palpitations when the paper came back and the teacher gives it to me. It was like, I got an A or A minus, whatever. And I just remember him saying, thank you. Like, I read, you know, hundreds of papers or hundreds of documents. And this was just really refreshing and creative. And you capture the spirit of them in a unique way. And I remember at that moment, I was like, oh, we're right. Like, I'm going to play. Like, I can go outside the lines here a little bit. And then getting to Nike was, there were no rules. I think that place, especially in the early 90s, it was a magical time in that, you know, my first job, I'm early 20s. I'm in LA. My boss was my age. She's in Portland. And she's like, hey, just enhance the connection between our brand and this community. And and I'm like, well, what else? Like, you got anything else to tell me? She's like, no, just go out there. And of course, like, I'm doing some things that are just off the wall bad, but then I'm doing things that are do well. And I was like, God, I love this place. And I, I think what's lost in a lot of businesses is being empowered. And that was the greatest gift is they're like, hey, we trust you. Go out and do what you got to do. And I was like, okay. <laughs> you know, but so... I think for me, I was fortunate to grow up as a first big job in a culture that was like, we're going to burn dogma for, for our daily breakfast. Like, that's what we do. Like, there really were no rules. Even on the idea of predictive things, I'm like, yeah, I'm like, okay, that's good. You know, versus, hey, what was the CAC or the marginal CAC or whatever the, you know, the language we use today around performance and growth marketing. So interesting to hear you say that because this is something I think about in fundraising a lot that even just asking ourselves the question differently, that is actually the fundamental question. I do a event planning boot camp, and the fundamental question I walk people through is what does this person feel? Like, what do your corporate sponsors feel at that event? What do your donors feel at that event? What do your board members feel at that event? And I kind of walk them through like experience, trying to experience, like I, they simulate it in their mind, what those people are experiencing. You know, they walk into the room, what's there? Who are they greeted by? What do they say? What are they proud of? Who do they want to sit with? You know, and I, I never, so much of what I created in my course was like, what do I think about 
when I'm helping an organ, right? Because I wanted to help people be able to do without hiring me one-on-one to be able to, to use the practices I used. And so I was like, okay, well, what do I do? Like, what are the questions I ask myself? And I found that so many of them went back to that. And it's so interesting because I think that a lot of, even the clients that I've worked with, it kind of freaks them out a little bit that I'm not talking about metrics or I'm not talking about how many silent auction items they're going to have at the table. And I'm not talking about, because I'm like, that's going to happen. But if we design first around the feelings of what we want to build, the other stuff is going to fall into place. And we're not actually going to waste so much time talking about whether you have like 40 silent auction items or 50, because that's not really the point, right? The point is this whole piece that no one's even asking. So I, yeah, I just love that that is like, it kind of comes back to that fundamental question. Yeah. I mean, one, I applaud the fact that you recognize that and I love the idea of like, anytime you're doing something and it's like, Peter Block would say, create connection before content. And I think when you try to understand what's the feeling you're trying to emote, your behavior and actions and how you're curating something shift. And um, recently I was speaking to this team at Microsoft and I was talking to them. And my first question is, after this, after we have our talk, like, what do you want people to feel? And so then I'm like, oh, okay, cool. I can create around that versus like, just give a talk and then not even be attuned to what type of vibration or verb that I you know, was trying to come from it. And I think what's, it's bold and it's scary and it's bold because it's venturing into the unknown. And it's scary for people because they're like, well, no, no, like, how is this going to go? You know, and to your point, if someone's like, no, like, is it 40 auction items? So I love that. And I just think it is like sometimes what's the question we're asking is such a, an important piece. And yet that's why I think the art of inquiry is also like a lost art. You know, just we don't have questions. We just make statements most of the time. Yeah, what well, that is like my life mantra is like, get curious, you know, like anytime I feel myself jumping to judgment or something, I'm just like, okay, you're not being curious enough. You're going to lose something big here. And yeah, I think that has also been something that I've just watched serve me and the people around me. I'm curious. I mean, one of the underlying questions I do, I am curious about your take on is, you know, the role of the nonprofit sector versus business. Because when I hear you talk about what businesses can be and and the types of businesses I know you've been involved in on board as an advisor, you know, when I graduated college, I think I believed that in order to make a social impact, the nonprofit sector was where I needed to be. And I knew that that was what I wanted. And so I never really considered that business could be a model for good in the way that you talk about it. And so, you know, what do you think about that? Like, how do these sectors complement each other? Do they need to be fundamentally different in certain ways? What do you think? I mean, I I don't think we need a fence between for-profit and non-profit, truthfully. Like, I think you can blur the lines. And I do believe business can be a force of good. Obviously, most non-profits are a force of good. But to me, it's more important for non-profit to blur the lines because sometimes when you're a non-profit, you operate from a place of scarcity. You're like, oh, we're a non-profit. And meanwhile, business is over there being bold and brash and doing all these things. And non-profits are like, hey, we're non-profit. Like, we're we're live with a set of limitations. 
like I'm at a, I'm on the board of the school here, Oak Grove School in Ohio, and it's a nonprofit. And I have to say, like the head of school is she's she's badass. I mean, she's like, no man, we're gonna be a force of change in the world, and this is how we're gonna do it. And you know, even fundraising, all those things, but it's never from a place of scarcity. It's place, it's actually from a place of abundance in terms of just recognizing like this, wow, imagine if we could do this, like what living possibility. And so I just, I think a lot of businesses are realizing the beauty of standing for something meaningful in the world. I still think there's a lot of brands that shouldn't even exist in businesses, whatever. But, but I think if you look at the ones, like here's an example, just because you know, I share this in the course, I'm going to school, University of Vermont. I'm taking economics class, learning about, about business and I'm watching Ben and Jerry's down the street, just crush everything I'm learning. I'm like, uh, like, is that business? Because what I'm learning is not <laughs> and they taught me early on though, like, man, you can stand for something. They were standing for social issues that were not nearly like in the early eighties. It was like, nobody was doing that, but they were like, no. And even today, I think they're, they got their voice back again. And so I, I think that's a great example of, Hey, you can make a great product, ice cream. And really with the, the magic is like standing for something meaningful in the world. And I just, once again, I sometimes find it, we minimize possibility by saying whether we're a for-profit or non-profit, because at the end of the day, I don't, I think you're both trying to really do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Well, you just walked right into my follow-up question or actually just kind of gave me the answer, which is exactly that. Like when I hear you talk about what it takes to approach business differently or like with that creativity. I'm like, there's an abundance there that you don't see in the nonprofit sector. There's like a safety of belief that it's going to be okay that nonprofits just don't hold. And I'm trying to really understand what fundamentally that is because it's not about the amount of money in the bank account. Like, I think what's really interesting to me, having grown up in the nonprofit sector and constantly being asked about our budget and our reserves, you know, six months reserves and kind of all these things that I was, you know, pounded about when I was running organizations. And then I watched COVID hit and I watched all these huge, mid-sized, small businesses have no reserves. And I didn't even realize that. And I was sort of like, wait a second, what? Don't they have at least six months reserve? How are how is this happening? Why is it just the nonprofit sector? And so it's I feel like I'm grappling with this fundamental question around both in practice but beliefs. Like how are we viewing money so differently that gives us either the catalyst to create bigger change or holds us back from it? Yeah. Well, if you think about it, what you just talked about, I mean, cash flow, whether you're a for-profit or nonprofit, is well, unless, you know, there's obviously a Silicon Valley model where it's just like, you can just raise money forever and never make a profit. But, um, <laughs> I'd, I'd like to think for those businesses that understand, you know, are more diligent around cash flow, it's a, a real issue whether you're for a for-profit or nonprofit. You know, even when I was at a, in public companies, it's like, you're looking at how much you're always looking at money piece. I think what's interesting to me is just how you approach then your business. Meaning if a nonprofit started from a white canvas and it just was like, okay, forget any limitations or things of scarcity. And you, we just said, okay, you focus more on what's the impact. You know, I always ask that burning question, what does the world need most that we're most uniquely qualified to deliver? And then you lived into that without 
limitations, knowing full well you've got to actually have money or cash flow and reserves and all those things. But those, I don't think like, I see the nonprofits spend a lot more time on that. And it's, I think it comes from desperation, whereas business comes from inspiration. It's like, okay, now we're going to do this. And I just think there's a mindset for me that I see around nonprofits more often than not that just operates from a place of scarcity. It's like, and their nonprofits and for-profits really aren't that much different at the end of the day. I guess that's the way I, I look at it. But yeah, it's it's an interesting challenge, but also it's an amazing opportunity, I think, for nonprofits, truthfully. First Tea of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First Tea of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tea of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. Yeah, I'm curious, and I don't know how much experience you've had with this in your different roles, but I'm curious about the way that that shift in mindset then can impact like strategic partnership opportunities, like when nonprofits and for-profits come together to run a campaign together. Is it harder for for-profit companies to partner with nonprofit companies because of that like fundamental mindset difference or... Is it that nonprofits aren't coming? Because one of the things I've seen in my work that's just was kind of the impetus of me creating my course was that when I went to for-profit companies and was like, I think there's something really big we could do together. They were like, talk to me. (laughs) 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 And and I spent 13 years being like, hey, will you give $2,500 to like our gala, be a sponsor, like pretty please, because we're doing this really good work. And then the moment I shifted I think we have a mutual goal and I think there's something really significant we could do if we come together. It was like that tiny shift shifted everything. And so it also has me thinking about, I really believe that cross-sector partnerships can be incredibly powerful, but I am wondering like, what are the kind of language barriers or mindset barriers that make it hard for us to sit at the same table and think really creatively together? Yeah, I mean, you've said actually a number of really interesting things. I mean, one is going back to the natural world, things thrive based on mutualistic partnerships. So one party is not taking from the other party. You're both mutually benefiting. And I think if something's positioned in that respect as a for-profit business, you're like, yeah, I'll listen. Oh, it's going to make me better. And there's going to be this mutualistic partnership. And I think that's such a key piece to it. I also think it's how you approach it. Like when you say, I got something big, like, of course, like people are like, yeah, but if there's like a timid nature to it, like, hey, what do you think? Like, maybe it's like, I don't know, whatever. But I also think at the end of the day, everything's about trust. And so whether or not you really trust the other partner, but I think brands, companies in today's world, you know, I say Great brands have our bonfires with soul and they stand for something bigger than their product. I think everyone's striving to get to that place for the most part. They're not exactly sure. I think partnerships are a really amazing way, as long as it's authentic and genuine and real. You know, we've also seen a lot of partnerships where you're like, that is 
That's gross. That's, you could tell it's just a transaction. It's not a deep relationship. But I think anytime you're a business, a company, and there's a nonprofit that wants to partner, I think it's how it's delivered. What's the point of view around it? One plus one equals 11 type thing. And that'll obviously, I think, be a lot of attention. And there's some like, real, I think, like, what do you think is a great example right now of a company, a for-profit and a non-profit partnership that you admire right now? Gosh, it's a really good question. I think they're actually probably ones we don't know about because I think sometimes it's a really good question. You know, one of the ones I talk about a lot for the nonprofit sector people to sort of show them kind of how valuable they are. You know, a big part of the way that I talk about nonprofits showing up to the table with for-profit companies is like, I have them do this process called asset mapping, where I have them basically list out all the assets of their organization that go way beyond their program themselves or their services. Because one of the things I have found is that when I've talked about scarcity or abundance, it's so hard for these nonprofit professionals to go from scarcity to abundance. I mean, abundance feels so far away. So for months, I was like, okay, what's in the middle? What's in the middle? What's the first step towards shifting out of scarcity. And so I started to think about, okay, assets. And so I have them write down everything from like their email list size to thought leaders on their board of directors and, you know, all these different things. And so then when they're showing up to these conversations with these for-profit businesses, they're talking about their organization with all of these assets. So one, it helps them kind of strategically align better because they're like, okay, this brand wants access to this audience. We have that. And so maybe let's figure out a way to do a campaign together, but also just changes the energy of the fundraiser, right? Because they feel like they're sitting at that table with something really valuable. So from that perspective, like one of the partnerships I talk about a lot is like Disney and Make-A-Wish because, you know, that is like a, a strong for-profit, non-profit strategic partnership that clearly elevates Disney's brand, right? They do commercials together. Now they have a shared product line together. There's, there's clearly, and so for nonprofit professionals to see, like, look at the value add of Make-A-Wish to Disney, right? But I don't know what that partnership looks like behind closed doors. I don't know how good it feels to Make-A-Wish, right? So I feel like probably the best ones are the ones that we don't even necessarily know about, but they're elevating the work of the nonprofit organization and the ecosystem around them, you know, supporting the business, but in a way that feels so authentic and aligned that we don't even see the cross-sector partnership there. Yeah, actually, that, that's fascinating. That's probably true, actually. You know, it's interesting too. I love the asset idea, by the way. That's brilliant. It reminds me there's a teacher, she teaches the entrepreneurial program at Stanford. I think her name's Tina Seelig. And she tells her class, we're going to do a project. You have five and you get in teams and you have $5 and then five minutes to present. How are you going to take this $5 and make it bigger? And so teams go off and they buy a bike pump and they pipe, you know, they spend a day doing pumping up tires for people on the bikes, whatever. And then there was one group though, that was like, Hey, what's our most valuable asset? in this. And they were like, it's not the five bucks, it's the five minutes. So they sold the five minutes to Frog Design, which is a design firm that could use that five minutes to recruit the students. And so rather than, you know, I don't remember the exact number, but they blew away everyone else's because they recognized what their assets were, you know, and I think 
getting people to see the assets is actually a really brilliant thought, actually. Because I think sometimes that scarcity is also just seeing like, oh, we just do this one thing and then we're, we're limited. But if you can define that asset mapping like you suggested, that's damn cool, actually. I might have to add that to my repertoire. Do it. <laughs> yeah. And then they have like 200 things. You know, what well, the coolest part is watching them look at this list of things yeah. and just being like, wow, you know, the value. Because you're right. And I love that example because I feel like the cognitive shortcut is to be like, money is the thing with value. But why? You know, take a step back. Okay, money is one piece of this puzzle, you know, and sure, put that on the, you know, for profits asset map, no problem. But that's not the standalone position. That actually really is brilliant. And I think that's applicable to actually any organization for profit, nonprofit, just as like that idea of asset mapping. It's interesting, really interesting. I love the way you talk about mutual benefit. I I think I might steal that because I often talk about win-win partnerships. And sometimes it can make nonprofit professionals, I think, feel a little bit uncomfortable. Like, why are we thinking about the win of the business? And I'm like, well, because the, the whole ecosystem being successful is important. But, you know, there is this sort of belief system or maybe old school belief system of nonprofits kind of coming to the table just with what they need and that people should just give because they're a nonprofit and to help them fill the gap. And so I love thinking about what does it take for us to really align around shared goals and the value we each bring to the table in order to achieve a shared goal that we have and for nonprofit professionals to believe that for-profits share a lot of the goals that they have. Yeah. So I was part of this thing called biomimicry. I was a part of the, actually the nonprofit biomimicry institute for eight years. And it's basically how you look at nature as a mentor. And it's founded by Janine Benyus. And in my Bonfire with Soul course, in the she talks on one of the podcasts, and she says something that really uh, has resonated with me. She says, the definition of what success is in nature is different than business. What she meant by that is she said, in nature, nothing survives by itself. There's an interdependence on all these other things. And with that comes the ability to create conditions conducive to life and thrive and flourish. Whereas business, it is true generally, for-profit, nonprofit, you're like, I'm going to go it alone. And that actually is counter to how the natural world would do it. And I do think, I mean, there's just, for me, I think the beauty of partnerships and collaborations are... I, they're rich because one, you're bringing also a diversity of different thought in, which I always think helps. You can get out of your own monoculture of, of thinking, but it's to me, it's so much is about partnerships and this mutualistic approach, you know, in a way that once again, both parties benefit without detracting from the other. And I feel like you talk about three principles. Well, trust in bonfire, trust is really woven in everything. I mean, I feel like you were telling stories about building trust almost in every module, even though there are some that are specifically talking about that. But like trust, honesty, perfection, those have a deep relationship with building partnerships. So what do you think about that? Like, what's the relationship between maybe even perfection and trust? Because I feel like a lot of nonprofit professionals, when they think about building strategic partnerships, their perfectionist hat 
goes on hard. And I believe it's actually the biggest barrier to them building deep, lasting strategic partnerships, but it feels terrifying to them to even hear that from me. Yeah, I mean, I think in the spirit of trust, one is there's so much beauty in letting go. You know, when you like, imagine looking at a personal level, if, you, if you're in a personal relationship, there's no trust that that, man, that is a hard, rough road. And I, I'm not sure anybody is feeling really good in that. But when there's just effortless loyalty and trust, then it's, you're not putting your mind on things that are like negative, you're actually probably putting more than likely putting your energy on all these things around possibility and connection. Then when I get to the idea of <laughs> perfection, well, I've lived it straight out. Like we had the Nike labor crisis in 95, which truthfully was, that was a horrific time for a lot of different reasons. But one of the worst things was just how the company actually handled that. It was like, okay, hire the biggest PR firms. We're going to like do damage control. And a lot of people were telling Phil Knight at the time, like, hey, we just need to be transparent. And he even says his biggest regret was he didn't listen to his own team on how to handle it. And so it, in many ways, just made what it was that level to be perfect, actually just inflamed the situation that still exists today. Like when you say child labor, sadly, a lot of times people think of Nike. I then went to Nike to seventh generation, which was redefining corporate responsibility. And I remember we'd mess up on something or like someone did a looked at one of our ingredients and there was a substrate that actually had been created that wasn't, you know, wasn't good. And I remember Jeffrey Hollander, the founder is like, we got to tell everybody, you know, my first reaction was like, what? <laughs> like we're doing what? He's like, oh yeah. Like transparency is everything. Just be honest. And we would tell the world like, Hey, this is what's going on. And everyone next, you know, like we, our business grew. And so I think this idea of honesty versus perfection, one it's actually really liberating for the individuals to not live under this cloud of trying to be perfect because that's that's super hard. And also, I just think enhances relationships when there's just a deep sense of vulnerability and honesty. It's like, yeah, this is this is what happened. This is where we're at. I think people appreciate that sense of humanness, truthfully. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. And I feel like something I say to fundraisers a lot is like, look, if you start with your perfectionist hat on, which I did for 13 years, right? I was just the fundraising robot I thought I was supposed to be and saying all the right things and doing all the right things. But then what it meant was that you always have to stay that way. You know, you're like kind of all of a sudden, you know, you're being this person isn't who isn't truly authentically you because you can't be authentic and perfect because nobody's actually perfect. So even in that kind of adoption, you're, you're losing yourself and then whatever you're doing isn't going to feel good there. So why do you think, why do you think nonprofits take the position that they need to be perfect because they they view themselves as less than or? Yeah. Oh gosh. I think there's probably multiple reasons for it. I think one is that, you know, one of the things that I am starting to kind of research on my own is the way that scarcity mindset actually shifts our decision making. Like it actually affects our cognitive ability. It changes our brain. There's a lot of research around it, not in relation to nonprofit professionals, looking more at things like scarcity in in situations of poverty and things like that. But 
I do think that the scarcity mindset is part of what breeds the perfectionism, right? Like if there isn't enough of something, then the way for me to get my share is to be error free, right? That I'm going to sort of risk any access or I'm going to risk any, you know, every meeting, every relationship feels like this like last shot kind of, or like your only shot. And as opposed to there being so many people out there, so many companies to partner with, so many, you know, how I, and I think I've said this to you before, like, I do not believe that the nonprofit kind of market size is a fixed market size at all. You know, it's like, okay, sure. Foundations give away a certain amount every year. Other than that, building partnerships with marketing departments, that's not even factored into philanthropic giving. Individuals, how much do you inspire them to get involved? Those are not, there's not some market share, but the wiring is that, you know, there's $5 in the bowl and whoever reaches fast enough at just the right angle, you know, is going to get it and, and everyone else isn't. So I think that's part of it. I think the other, yeah, is, I mean, I think scarcity is like a financial construct, but also an emotional one, right? That like they are less than, they're coming to the table without the thing of value. They're the one in need of something, asking for something. So I think that creates a lot of it. And I think we, I just think we're so afraid to be fully seen, particularly when we need help. You know, however we view that, we're just so afraid to be visible. And maybe because we're afraid of hearing that our organization isn't refined enough for that investment, because then we take it to mean that we've done something wrong. Or yeah, part of it probably is that the causes that professionals are committed to feel like a part of them. And so it's almost like hearing, you know, somebody doesn't like your nonprofit. I've heard this from clients before. I'm like, look, not everyone's going to like your nonprofit. No problem. Like you're never going to find the right people unless you are who you are, you know? And they're like, but like, that means they don't like me. And it's just like, I think it like hits on our like deepest human desire to just feel loved and appreciated and that what we're doing is like the right thing. And when something indicates that maybe it's not, it wasn't the right pitch or it wasn't the right partnership or it wasn't good enough in this way, we then build these structures and systems to avoid any other interaction like that. I'm curious is, do you find that there's like a traditional path or trajectory for someone who enters a nonprofit versus a business? Meaning, is there like a mindset or? Well, there are some characteristics that I have found to be really true. So in my, my executive coach certification program was through an organization called IPEC. And one of the tools that I'm trained on is this thing called the leadership index assessment. And it's a attitudinal assessment that basically evaluate sort of your current resonating energy level, like how you normally operate. And then what happens when you're triggered into stress? And there are these seven levels that go from level one is like 
they talk about catabolic energy. Level one is like martyrdom, victimhood. Level two is anger. Level three is rationalization. Four is helper energy. Five is win-win energy. Six is joy. And seven is enlightenment, right? So you can sort of feel how from like victimhood to enlightenment, right? There's this whole spectrum of, of human experience and leadership styles. And, and I've taken those and turned them into the seven styles of fundraising. But I've done this assessment now with hundreds of fundraisers. And what's really interesting, this is the first time I'm sharing this actually, is that 98% of the assessments that I've done, the primary resonating energy level with nonprofit leaders is four, which is the helper energy. And the primary level when they're triggered into stress is one, which is victimhood and martyrdom. And then they have a really strong three typically, which is rationalization. So there's this loop that I see with all of them where they're like, helper, 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 helper. Someone says no, someone doesn't respect me. Deep into paralysis, victimhood, martyrdom, being kind of at the effect of their life. Then they rationalize that, well, they just don't understand or they just don't know what we really need or they don't. And they rationalize their way right back up to four. And then they just keep themselves in this loop, right? And there's little access to win-win at five and little access to joy at six. And so I think what I, one of the things that I'm, that I explore with a lot of my clients is like, okay, so four. So first of all, this assessment is not like, this is who you are forever and ever. This is like how you're showing up right now. It can shift. And so a lot of what I talk about with my clients is, okay, so you have a strong level for helper energy. And they'll be like, yeah, being helpful is like a strong core value of mine. And I'm like, okay, is it a chosen value? Is it a, a conscious-based value? Or is it a fear-based value? And they're like, what are you talking about? Like, it's my value. And I'm like, okay, but does it come from a place of, I want to be this? Or does it come from a place of, if I'm not helpful, then? then I'm unlovable, then I'm not enough, then people won't want me here. And that has been such a kind of like a eye-opening experience, how many people that is true for, that it comes from a fear-based place, like they needed to be helpful, right? Or out, like I'm the oldest of four girls, right? I totally grew up believing that like my value was deeply linked to how helpful I was you know, and how much I made things easier for the people around me and how little space I took up myself. And I, and the pattern in seeing this in my clients is like, okay, so it's not that level four is a bad place to be. It's a great, pretty anabolic place to live. But if it's not coming from a place of choice, then it's all scarcity. Yeah. It's actually, I talk a little bit about this in the course, this idea of for me, it's a practice. Am I working from inspiration or desperation? And I try just to notice it. And I always think of, well, there's the Buddhist way, but even Viktor Frankl would say, there's that magic space between stimuli and response. And what is your chosen response? And I've seen, I guess, one thought and then a question is, I just think our chosen response around something is so important. Like, I mean, when I was at Lime, that's the micromobility company, we were supposed to launch in Germany. We had five weeks. It was a rush, rush. And there was just like really frenetic behavior. And it was like, oh my God, we're going to like, we're going to blow it. And I'm like, my whole thing was like, what if we actually nailed this? Like what, like how could we like look at this from a place of possibility versus this plane not to lose or this like safety thing? Fortunately, we did really, really well. And it was a couple of people that would 
commented later, like just changing our mindset had such a huge, huge impact on our behavior and our actions and what we did. I guess the question has have then is, do you think, well, I would be curious where you think the business sector would fall in the one to seven. And then the other question is, do you just think the nonprofit world is lives in the fours and three, whatever, just because it's, that's the culture of non, conditioning that all the time? Yeah. Well, the thing I'll say to answer your first question is that because I do coach like 25% of my clients end up being from outside the nonprofit sector, just from referrals. And I do sort of, you know, regular executive coaching and there's just a lot of diversity there. So it's not actually that like, yes, I see more primary fives and primary sixes, but I also see more primary threes, you know, and I see four there too. It's just that it's not all the same, which is in my, you know, maybe 98% is the wrong number. In my entire time doing this assessment with nonprofit professionals, only one person has not had four as their primary energy level, one person. So it's like, but that is not what I see outside of the nonprofit sector. I think part of it, and I'm curious how this is going to change as I feel like businesses are changing in so many ways or brands are, you know, becoming about more than their product. I'm curious how it's going to shift kind of where people go in terms of like they graduate college and what's the right space for them. You know, I mentioned I really felt like the nonprofit sector was where I could make an impact. I feel like there are these feeders around sort of like what you're interested in earlier on. And then what is the, like, I never thought of going to business school really until a few years ago. And I was like, maybe I should go back and get my MBA. Cause I actually think there's this whole thing I'm missing, this whole thing that would have made me a better nonprofit leader. And so I think we're just, we're really siloed. And I think in a lot of institutions, we're told you want to make money, you go to business school, you have a big heart, go into nonprofit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, I do think that is the general label, you know, for a lot of people. And I think that right away, you're, I think, you're putting a cap or a limitation on a nonprofit. You're saying you're going to play in this little space. This is what you're going to do. And you're not going to be able to experience these other things because that's, that's the way it's positioned. And are there any nonprofits out there that you feel like, wow, these are just really bold, adventurous, like burning dogma, breaking rules that you admire? Yes. I mean, there are so many there are so many. I really love the organization She's the First, and they work on you know elevating women and girls around the world. And actually, the reason that I and that is definitely not their mission statement. So they can, <laughs> we can put the actual mission statement below this. But the reason why they're on my mind so much right now is they just a few weeks ago, months ago now, maybe came out with a statement around why they stopped sponsoring girls. They essentially kind of shut down an arm of their fundraising model where they used to allow donors to sponsor girls. And so it was just this post on Instagram about why they stopped that practice, how it's actually rooted in, you know, colonialism and white supremacy and and all these things. And, And when I saw it, I was just like, wow, like this is, you know, bold and right, but fearless in the way they talked about this is the right thing to do. And some of you are going to come along for this and some of you aren't, but it doesn't actually change how important it is that we do this. And I think even as I'm watching kind of this reckoning a little bit happening in some areas of the nonprofit sector, moving from donor-centric models of fundraising to community-centric models of fundraising, 
I think there is this desire to sort of get out of the fear-based scarcity models, believe there are other ways to build organizations, but and in recognizing that there's so much kind of like looping belief systems. And I want to make sure, I want to flip the partnership question back on you. Are there like cross-sector partnerships that really inspire you? Um, I guess there's two things. One is I am seeing more and more companies adopt a social impact arm within their businesses, which I think is interesting. And then you're bringing in people who are really good at understanding social impact and generally from nonprofits. So I, I just think that's emerged. That seems to be becoming more and more predominant. And for some companies, it's bullshit because it's just this like, hey, we're, it's like sustainability. We have this, we have a group, you know, we have a social impact. Right. <laughs> but I've, I'm seeing that done better and better. You know, I live here in Ojai, so I'm close to Patagonia. I like the 1% for planet model. I think that's a good, there's a lot of partners that love that as a badge, you know, and they have 1%. And I think there's value around it. And I'm, there's probably a lot of them, but that's the one that comes to me just because I know how proud people are to have like the 1% on decal on their small window or whatever it is. And so I think that that's a good example where I think it works well. and. I don't know the current executive director. I knew the previous one. And I know like he was always like under the kind of like the raise and everything. So it's not, you know, you're trying to find the right partner. So it's just seemed like it was this constant chase. But, and then the other one, I have mixed feelings about it, but I thought red was like, like that one in terms of just the scale of the amount of money that was raised was staggering. Obviously it was, you know, the goal was to go to a, proper cause, HIV and AIDS. But in that, I forget her name, the woman who was leading that. I had one conversation with her. I can tell you flat out, she never lived from a place of scarcity. Her conversation, she was bold and brash. And for some people, maybe too much, but I, I don't think you can discount the value of like what it was in terms of size and scale. And I don't even know where it is at in today's world, but that was like, I think a good, a, an example of one that lived and breathed in a lot of big corporations. You know, everyone wanted to have a red campaign during that time of year. So yeah, those are the, I, but I think I have greater affinity for 1% just because it's, I like the model in the distribution of funds. Yeah. Yeah. I love them. I love them too. I want to be really sensitive of time, but I'd love to ask you to share, you know, where people can find you. And if you want to share anything else about Bonfire, and then if there is a nonprofit that you would like to highlight for folks to go check out and give if they can. Um, well, folks generally can't find me because I'm hiding all the time. <laughs> 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 I mean, people are like, hey, during COVID, like, what's it like? And I'm like, it's sad because it's tragic and the carnage. And, but for me personally, I love solitude. So it's great. I, you know, I live in the hills of Ojai and so that, and, and nestled in nature. So it's been beautiful, but folks can find there's, I have bonfire with soul.com is just the whole idea there was I, thought there could be a new school of thought around business. I half jokingly said I was going to take down or obsolete Harvard Business School. I think it's actually becoming less and less a joke and more serious. But And it's just 12 principles that I've operated under over the last 30 plus years that once again, kind of go against the grain of traditional thought and thinking. And it worked for me. And so I just, uh, I'm sharing that. And then um, I'm private on Instagram, um, but I am on, I'm on Twitter and you could definitely see my left leaning side. So on Twitter. So 
<laughs> I'm not sure everyone will love that. Um, they will if they're listening to this, probably. Okay. <laughs> and that time, what was the, you had, I, did, I thought that was one last question. I can't remember what it was. Oh, if there's a nonprofit that you'd yeah. like to highlight. The Biomimicry Institute for me is just one of the, um, I just think nature, you know, for 3.8 billion years, there's been this mentor for us. And we can adopt life's principles and how nature would operate. And so I always ask, you know, when people say, what should we do? I'm always like, ask nature. And Biomimicry Institute is doing just really brilliant work. Beth Ratner, who's up in uh, Marin, who's the executive director, has just done a remarkable job. So Biomimicry Institute, if you haven't seen it, or go to asknature.org. And I think you can find out a lot of cool things. So. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope everyone will go check out Bonfire with Soul. I think it is a course I wish I had taken when I was running a nonprofit too. There's so much. I mean, it's going to change my business dramatically. Some of the principles that you talk about have just been mind-blowing. So thank you for all of that. My pleasure. Thank you. And I'm just really excited for what you're up to. I actually think you turning the world upside down and waking (laughs) up the neighborhood around this is going to be just such a breath of fresh air. So, and I wish you the best on this. Thank you. Is Duke just one of the most amazing humans you've ever met or what? (laughs) The way he talks about business and nonprofits and what's possible when we work together in true alignment and partnership, hearing him talk always inspires me and pushes me to grow and do better. I hope this episode also made you start to get curious about the fundamental differences between the nonprofit sector and the for-profit sector and where things are structurally different versus where we just have a different mindset. I think the potential of the nonprofit sector will expand exponentially if we can start to break out of this scarcity mindset to move from desperation to inspiration, as Duke talks about. There were so many takeaways from this episode, so head on over to MalloryErickson.com backslash podcast for the detailed show notes with all of the top tips and tricks, plus access to more free resources from my 15 years of fundraising. You'll also find more information about Duke there, including a link to Bonfire with Soul. Most importantly, thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I'm so grateful to all of my listeners, especially you, and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you next week. Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.